Well, we live in a, in a world that is filled with weariness. If you turn on the TV or look on the news, I mean, it's, you don't have to look long to see the brokenness of our world. Political turmoil, violence, wars, famine, corruption, injustice abounds everywhere. And we wouldn't even need the, the TV or social media to, to tell us that, would we? If we, just, if we just talked among ourselves this morning about what's going on in our lives in this room, there would be many testimonies of, of suffering and brokenness. It's not just out there, it's in our lives as well. Medical diagnosis, even in the past couple of weeks, that have rocked our world. Financial pressures uncertain futures, sin that has been done by us that we wish we had not done, and sin that has been done to us that we wish had not. Family strife, loneliness, we could could go on. And at, at times, I don't know about you, but for me it feels like it's just so much. What we need is we need, we need help. God, would you make it end? Would you, would you take it away? No more pain. Would you make the weariness stop? This morning as we come to the prophet Micah, we are going to see that we have reason to have hope in the midst of a weary world. That there is a God who indeed sees and cares and makes promises that He's going to do something about it and then proves true on His promises like He always does to enter into our suffering. That He comes to taste, <laughs> to taste our sadness as we just sang and enter in that we might know that He loves us in the midst of all of the reasons that we might have to doubt. The prophet Micah. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, this will be on page 778 of the Bibles that are provided for you there. If you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, feel free to take that with you today. It's a gift from us to you. Oftentimes, at this time of the year, we we read passages about Jesus' coming. Well, this morning, we're going to look some 700 years before the coming of Christ, and we're going to see God make promises to the nation of Israel, the steward of promises was this nation about the one who is to come. Well, Micah prophesied some between the years 730 and, and 710. He had about a 25-year ministry. He ministered particularly to the, the southern kingdom. It was a day of financial affluence, but it was all really an illusion with the idea that all was well because there was also much idolatry and injustice. There was prosperity, but there was a lot of oppression. There were also false prophets who would be lying to the people saying, God will never judge us. We're above that. We're the people of His promises. Don't worry. Peace, prosperity, that's all you've got to to look forward to. There's nothing bad coming on the horizon. But that wasn't the truth. And Micah came to tell the people the truth that indeed judgment was going to come against the northern kingdom, but also to the southern kingdom that he would, would speak to. The book of Micah is arranged with three messages, chapters 1 and 2, 3 through 5, and then 6 through 7, that alternate between a message of judgment, bad stuff's about to happen because of your sin, and then a message of salvation, good stuff's going to happen because I'm merciful to you. So judgment, salvation, then judgment, salvation, judgment, salvation. We, in chapters 4 and 5, are in the second of those messages, 
And the second part, he's just finished giving a word of judgment because of false teachers who are lying to the people about God. And now he's going to give a word of hope, a promise of salvation, that in the midst of all of the injustice and all of your suffering and all of your tears and all of your pain, God will enter in and he will give you peace. That's kind of the big idea that hangs over this entire passage. That we have hope because Jesus will purge the world of sin and provide everlasting peace. We have hope because Jesus will purge the world of sin and provide everlasting peace. Let's walk through our, our text here. It's going to be in, in kind of three movements, verses 1 through 5. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, we're going to see that salvation is coming. And then chapter 4, 6 through 5, 1, that there's particularly salvation from enemies. And then 5, 2 through 5, 13, there's going to be salvation by a shepherd. Salvation by a shepherd. Salvation is coming, chapter uh, 4, verses 1 through 5. The prophet says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And she, he, he shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree and none shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever. What you might be able to sense that the Lord is doing here is He's lifting the eyes of His weary people to see that a day is coming. A day is coming in which they can put all of their hope. A day in which none will make them afraid any longer. But they will be able to sit under the vine and the fig tree because people aren't going to come through and ravish them anymore, but there will be abundance in which they will know His joy. A day when the kingdom of God that here in our text is referred to as a mountain will be exalted above all other kingdoms and that there will be a king above all other kings that will reign over that kingdom for the good of God's people. He's showing them a day that is coming. It's a day not yet for them, but a day that is to come. And this day is marked by several things in our text. The first, did you notice there in verses 1 and 2, that it's a day of pilgrimage. It's a day of pilgrimage. Again, verse 1, people shall flow to it, many nations shall come. Just as in Solomon's day, you remember King Solomon, where people flocked to hear his wisdom and to see his splendor? Well, a day is coming, this text says, when people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will draw near to hear Messiah in his kingdom. Now, as we unfold what all of these days are, that the Lord, all the things the Lord is doing in the days to come, 
I think it's helpful for us to understand the way that God often fulfills His promises to His people um, in a near and far fulfillment. So a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. And oftentimes, from the people who were receiving this originally, they wouldn't have seen that there were two of those. But we live further on in history, and with Christ coming, we, we see that there's a near and a far fulfillment. And we'll point out both of those as we, we work through here. So there's going to be a near fulfillment for these people who are receiving this in Micah's day. Some 700 years later, Jesus would indeed come. And He came, and He lived, and He died, and He rose, and then He ascended to rule will return, and He will defeat all of God's enemies fully and finally, and He will usher in the final stage of the eternal return, and He will defeat all of God's enemies fully and finally, and He will usher in the final stage of the eternal return, and He will defeat all of God's enemies fully and finally, and He will usher in the final stage of the eternal turn, and He will defeat all of God's enemies fully and finally, and He will usher in the final stage of the eternal kingdom where the new heaven and new earth in which we will we will be with him in the heavenly mount zion where there will be evil no more so there's an already not yet there's a near there's a far fulfillment i'll try and point those out as we work through the text so this is a day of of pilgrimage right so already we see that with christ coming the church is filled with people i mean look around we're not all from the same background in Christ, He brings people together. Well, there'll be a day when we will celebrate in the new heavens and new earth. We'll be with Him where literally people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be gathered with Him. It'll also be, verse 2, a day of truth. He may teach us His ways that we may walk in His paths. He will give us His law, His word. This is in contrast to the false teachers in chapter 2 and 3 who were lying about God, who were continually saying that, listen, God won't judge you. Don't worry, no judgment's coming at all. All you need to worry about is, is the peace that He promises you and the prosperity that is coming for you. What Micah wants us to see here is, look, <laughs> there is a day of peace coming, yes, but, but it's got to be rooted in truth. God will send His King who will lead His people in His ways according to His Word and by His Spirit. This speaking of the truth in the days of Messiah is foreshadowing the, the promised new covenant. Listen to this from Jeremiah, another prophet. God promises in Jeremiah 31, I will put my law within them, within his people, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, for they shall all know me, from the least, least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Micah promises a day of truth, which, which now is fulfilled in, in the church. By God's grace, we are a people who don't know everything, but what we do know is we know there's a Savior, and by His Spirit, we have His Word, and we now, uh, we as a forgiven people, we teach truth to one another to point us and our hearts to, to God that we might follow after Him. But there's also a day that is yet to come in which Jesus will return and we will learn from Him personally. Now that'll be amazing, won't it? Can you imagine that? You won't even need a pastor anymore. Praise God, right? Amen? <laughs> and you won't have to guess, is he right or not? <laughs> because it'll be Jesus. He will be the shepherd of his people. He'll be the king in their midst, teaching them all things. 
What a day that will be. We get a foretaste of that now through His Word as we huddle up together learning about Jesus. There's a day of truth, but there's also a day of justice. You catch that in verse 3? He shall judge. He shall decide. He's highlight- and you've got to remember that Micah was speaking to the peasants who, the, who were out in the, in the fields who were being taken advantage of and being oppressed by all of the rulers. Isaiah, who preached at the same time, he went after the kings in the palaces. Micah is going out to all of the oppressed people in the pastures. And he's, he's encouraging them. A day of justice is coming. A day where, where God will judge meaningful matters to his people. Well, in the church, we should already be today um, knowing the fruit of this, to where if we are indeed led according to God's word, we should deal justly with one another, to where we're going to not lie to one another, we're not going to cheat one another, we're not going to deceive one another, but we're going to speak the truth in love. A taste, a foretaste of the justice that is to come should be experienced now in our midst. But brothers and sisters, know that there is a day coming when King Jesus will come back and every bit of injustice that has occurred in this world will be made right. He's going to make it right. King Jesus will judge justly. Can you imagine living in a world with no fear of betrayal? No footnotes on contracts. No prenups. No distrust. No Sorry, Russell, no lawyers. Like, you won't even need lawyers any longer because Jesus, it'll just always be right, okay? But not yet, so keep your job, okay? So there'll be a day of justice. There's also a day of of peace. Look again at verse 3. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn any more. He says instruments that were created to take life will be transformed into farming instruments. Things that give life. No more bombs. No more peace treaties. No more breaking of peace treaties. No more terrorism. No more funerals. A day of peace for all. Turn the Pentagon into like a a market. What are you going to do with it? You're not going to even need it anymore. Amen. Yeah. But today in the church, we should get a foretaste of that. It should be, we are, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. We should be a people of peace who know the Prince of Peace and who are always seeking to restore peace with one another. The church ought be a refuge now under the care and the leadership of Jesus in which we have a refuge from a world that doesn't understand how to have peace. This is what ought mark us now. Imperfectly now, but one day, the Prince of Peace will return and war will be no more. No more. No more war. Can you imagine? Right now, I, I, if I turn on the news at night to watch it with my kids, I mean, it lasts just a couple minutes and I have to turn it off because of the things that are constantly doing to one another in our world No more war. Come, Lord Jesus. It will be a day of peace. But it will also be a day of division. You're like, that doesn't seem to match up with everything else. Well, listen to what he says here, verse 5. The peoples walk in the name of their God, meaning in these days, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God. 
So today, people follow after their own gods, whether it be some, some actual god that they create or they be their own god. You know, if it's good for you, not for me, that's fine. I follow my own heart. Whatever. People are following after their own gods, but, but the Lord says there's going to be a day when all idols and supposed gods are going to be put down, and it will be evident who the one true God is. This is what Jesus came to do at now, right? He came. He says that there's a, there's a broad road that everybody follows on, and there's a narrow way. Jesus is the eternal fork in the road to where we know who the true God is through Him. Well, there'll be a day when there's, there'll be no doubt about it because the Lord Jesus will return and all idols and those who follow after idols will be put down in judgment and He will reign and we'll know Him in full face to face. I think what this is intended to do for Micah's day and our day, it's that there is hope. I don't know about you, but there are times when it feels like there's really no reason to hope anymore. God's Word tethers us to reality. That there is a God who does care, and He's making promises, and He's keeping His promises. God is aware of how wearisome the constant lies and injustice and abiding sin and strife are for us. He knows and He cares, and this kind of text is intended to call our hearts to hush, be still, have hope in Him, because salvation is coming. It's coming. And that salvation, chapter 4, 6 through 5, 1, is going to include salvation from enemies. Salvation from, from enemies. This is your second point. Look at Chapter 4, verse 6, In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. In the lame, I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. As God speaks about establishing His kingdom, the first thing, do you notice who's on this invite list? Not all the people that you might expect to see if a king's going to come and establish his kingdom. I mean, what Assyria would do and Babylon would do when they would come and take over a nation, they would take the brightest and the smartest and the strongest away to Babylon and they'd leave everybody else behind. Jesus says that's not how it's going to be when he comes. The kingdom of God is going to be filled with the most unlikely of people. Do you feel weak? Do you feel weary? Do you feel... a have you been abused? Have you been forgotten? Are you an outcast? The good news is that Jesus stacks his kingdom with those sorts of people. With the unworthy. The kingdom of God is filled with those who are forsaken on earth. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says that God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. This is the hope that we have. That we've been turned away, that the world is turned away Christ says, come unto me. I will build my kingdom with you. Verse 8, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come. The former dominion shall come. Kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Notice here, God calls Israel the tower of the, the flock. Uh, a shepherd would have a tower that they would be able to get up on, on this, this tower and, and, and look and watch, watch the sheep. Well, Israel is here known as that. It's, it's known as the, the tower of the flock. The one who oversees the sheep of God. 
Well, he wants them to know a king is coming for you, Israel. You who I've made so many promises to. He's coming for you, a king. In verse 9 and following, we learn that suffering, however, will precede glory. So, the comforting hope of a king will be preceded by the horror of coming exile. Now, this is important to understand again in Micah's day. This is around the year 735 to 710. This is when the northern kingdom is being taken away by Assyria in judgment because of their idolatry. And what Micah's doing is he's saying, yo, southern kingdom, if you think you're above that, you better check yourself because this is coming for you as well. If you don't forsake your idolatry and turn from your injustice, there is going to be an exile for you as well, which there was. It would be Babylon who would come for them in the year 586, so something like 150 years later. This is what he's going to foretell here. All these words of promise, hold on to them, but know trouble's going to come first. 4.9, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out, of, out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So he says to the southern kingdom, hey, I've got good news for you. Assyria will not take you into exile like they did the northern kingdom. Everybody's like, yay. But there's bad news. You are going into exile. 115 years later is when it's going to come, but exile and judgment will come upon you because of your sin. But there's good news. Because from there, he says, he points out twice, from there, what's he say he's going to do? You shall be rescued. God will not abandon you in exile forever. And you know what? Israel was indeed saved from Babylon after their, their 70 years in captivity. God raised up Cyrus, um, who was the, the king of Persia, to defeat um, Babylon and then set Israel free. You can read about that in Isaiah 45. So there was a near fulfillment for this, that they'll be delivered from um, from their time in exile and their oppression. And that was what God did through Cyrus. Brought Israel back into the land. But there's also going to be a, a far fulfillment of this. When you read through the book of Revelation, you find the repeated theme that God is going to come back to His people who are exiled in sin and He will take them to a new heaven and a new earth. That Jesus will destroy the satanic system known as Babylon and all of her immorality and oppression and evil he will judge it and he will usher his people into the kingdom of God this is the hope of God's people that though we are exiled in our sin he will come to us to set us free we get a foretaste of that even now in what Christ has done liberating us from the enslavement to sin but there's a day coming far from now or maybe in about a minute, I hope it's now, when the Lord Jesus will return and will indeed purge the world of all evil. Look what he says here, chapter 4, verse 11. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her be defiled, let her eyes gaze upon Zion, 
But they, the enemies of God, do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand His plan. Which, pause for just a second. Important thing to notice here, God is telling His people the plan. You see, the enemies of God and His people are ignorant of who God is and what He's actually doing, but God's people are in the know, which even though bad things happen, they know that God sees and cares and they have promises to hold on to in the midst of it. They do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand His plan that He has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their grain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they shall strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. This may be a little bit tricky to follow, but what God is saying is this. Nations have surrounded Israel in Micah's day like a pack of wolves to devour God's people. But what they don't realize is that God is actually ordaining that because He is gathering them for judgment. He is going to bring them together and bring judgment on them. Now, it's uncertain exactly how that happened in Micah's day. It may have been through the Persian Empire who came in and crushed Babylon. We're, we're unsure. But it is very clearly speaking about the day that is to come that's spoken of in Zechariah 14, Revelation 16, Revelation 19 that is commonly known as, as the Battle of Armageddon where you see all of the nations of the earth gathering out to war against the Lamb and His people, and that God comes down, and what you would expect to be, I mean, think about it. It's the greatest war of all time. You have every nation gathered against God and His people, and it's supposed to be this epic showdown, right? It's like a half a verse, and God rained down fire, and it was over. It's just done. God gathered them. They thought they were gathering to trample upon God's name and his people, but rather they are gathered for judgment. And God likens the judgment that falls upon them as beating out the, the wheat to, 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 to separate the, the grain from the, the, the shaft that was cast away and, and forgotten. There is a great battle of humanity against God, but it does not end well for the rebels. Now chapter 5, verse 1, this muster your troops call, God is calling upon Israel to call their army, and most people think he's, um, it's a bit of sarcasm, because Israel really has no hope against Babylon. Judah, they, they, you can't fight them. It's basically, he's taunting them because they can't muster an army to defend themselves, and you might say, that's not very kind, why would God do that? And the reason is because Israel kept looking to idols. They'd bring in their idols to help them fight. And God's like, oh yeah, we'll get your army together. How's that going to go? You can't help yourself. This is one of the constant themes throughout the Bible. God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who know they can't help themselves. And that was Israel's continual problem as they thought they could get it together and, and be their own strength. And he's like, no, you can't. Get your army together to stop Assyria and Babylon. How's it going for you? There's siege against you. What you need is you need me to come and to set you free. This striking on, on the, uh, uh, the judge of Israel in the cheek 
likely a reference that, that uh, during the, the being taken away in exile, King uh, Hezekiah was mocked and shamed and slapped. And what he's, he's saying to them is it's okay if your government fails. It's okay if your king doesn't, doesn't set you free. Which is, because he's not your ultimate hope. What you need is a better hope. You need a better king. And God says, I'm going to give it. This is the whole promise he's telling them. I'm coming among you to care for you. Again, what we're supposed to sense here, and this is to a weary people in a broken world of oppression and suffering, is that your suffering and oppression will not last forever. God will make all things right. He's going to fix it. All of the things that oppress and hurt and wound and make you cry in this life. No more. No more terrorists. No more Alzheimer's. No more cancer. No more children's wards for sickness. No more betrayals. No more lies. No more cheating. No more. No more fickle governments. and No, no more. Jesus is going to come and make it right. He wants them to trust in Him and to have the assurance that an advocate will come and reign on their behalf. Which before we move into the last section, just a good reminder to pause here and see how to rightly view all of the things that we tend to lean on for help. So hearing this should not just make Christians be like, okay, fine, then we shouldn't do anything at all. And just like lay back and be lazy like the, what was going on in Thessalonica where they're like, well, Jesus is going to come in any moment then we shouldn't even work. That's not the answer either. But it's, it's meant for us to hold all our hopes with open hands. To realize that a change in location or job or government or relationship is not going to be your ultimate help or your ultimate hope. We can hope that there will be good changes in our marriages and in our families and in our lives and in our governments and in our, all the things that we look to. We can hope for that, right? We, 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 can, we can hope that the, that the Redskins will get a new GM or a new owner. That he'll just sell, right? I'm sorry, Butch. But whoever. Like all the little things, though, that we look to for help and hope, everything fails us. Everything does. He wants us to put our, to put our hope in the right places. It's okay to have things you look to to try and make the world better, but that's not the ultimate hope for God's people. We need a Messiah to come among us and to rescue us. So again, remember, 700 years before Jesus comes, God now, through the prophet Micah, in our third and final section here, we're going to see he's going to be salvation by a shepherd. And what he's going to do is he's going to send them some GPS coordinates and he's going to tell them, let me tell you where he's going to come through. Let me tell you where this promised one who is going to come and make all things right, let me tell you where he's going to be born. 700 years before it happens. God calls a shot here. Verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor, labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. 
And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure for now. He shall be great to the ends of the earth. He shall be their peace. He'll be their peace. The prophet here foretells that God will send a great ruler from ancient of days who is a good shepherd who will minister in the Lord's power and who will be their peace. And what's the name of the city that he's going to be born in? Bethlehem. Now it's not Jerusalem, which you would think that's the capital. You would think that if a king is going to come, he's going to come to the biggest city where, where everything's happening. But no, Bethlehem is like one of those small little Texas towns that you drive through and you just blink and it's gone. Like there's like nobody there. Like in the town that I used to live in in Texas, it was 9,000 people. Right next to it, there's a little place called Bryson. There's like seven people and they're all related. Like they all live in this little town called Bryson. It would be like the king of glory being born there. It's not even on Google Maps probably. Bethlehem with this tiny tiny forgotten little village away from the city where nothing ever meaningful happens. But isn't that just like the Lord? To choose the foolish things of the world. That in this little town, which was also the home to some important people. Anybody know who else was born in Bethlehem? Boaz, Jesse, and who was Jesse's son? David. The house of David. This was David's birthplace. Now Bethlehem, it's a compound word in Hebrew. It has two words. Anybody know what they are? Beit means house. Lechem means bread. Bethlehem is the house of bread. This is important because you've got a famished world dying. They need sustenance. Well, in the house of bread, one's going to come. Ephrathas is the region surrounding Bethlehem, which means fruitful one. So in the house of bread, there's going to be fruitfulness. Again, he points out here how small it is. Too little to be among the clans of Judah. This king, again, is not being born in a palace. Rather, this insignificant town. This place had nothing to deserve honor. But God chose the lowliest of places to give the greatest honor. The coming of the glorious Messiah will be characterized by humility. That Philippians 2 passage that we heard this morning. He says, From you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler. So Messiah comes from the promised people for the glory and purposes of God. And that, that word comes forth, it's a military term. The picture here is you have this warrior shepherd who goes forth on behalf of God, fighting for his people, rescuing them from all of the oppression that is happening because of their own sin and because of the sin that is coming against them from others. And do you notice his resume here? He is from old, ancient of days. So he's going to be a ruler, yes. He's going to be a savior, yes. But he's not just from the, the family line of David or Judah or Abraham, but from where? From ancient of days. As Psalm 90 verse 2 will speak of, from everlasting to everlasting. 
This one who's going to be born as humans are, he's going to be fully human, but he's not going to be just human. Because we're not from ancient of days. We have a beginning at the moment of conception. But, but Jesus, he's everlasting. He's not merely human. His, his pre-existence here proves him to also be divine. He's going to be the God-man. The God-man's going to come among you and rescue you. Now, again, before Messiah comes, it's going to get worse. Verse 3, God shall give them up. He's recounting what we just talked about a moment ago, a moment ago exile in the northern kingdom uh, in 722. Uh, by, by Babylon, and then the southern kingdom, Assyria, 586. But even in the midst of that, God's going to send prophets during the exile, Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, to comfort his people. Lots more promises about Messiah in there. Then, again, 538, Cyrus is going to release them from Persia. And then Ezra is going to come back, rebuild the city. Nehemiah is going to come back, rebuild the wall. God's going to send more prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, all foretelling again. And the reason God does that, he gets Israel back in the land because... Then, verse 3, until the time when she who shall give birth. God recollects his people back in Israel for a time, some 400, 700 years after this is spoken, 400 years after Micah signs off, the last prophet of the Old Testament, there is going to be a woman who's going to give birth. We know her to be we know her to be Mary, Luke chapter 2, who comes from the lady Israel, right? God uh, speaks of her in that way in Revelation chapter 12. But the, the child given birth here is, of course, Jesus, the one who fulfills all of God's promises. He's been laying on here promise after promise after promise after promise. Jesus is indeed the promise fulfillment. He is, John chapter 1, the word from everlasting who became flesh and dwelt among us, the God-man. He is Matthew chapter 2, born in Bethlehem. In the house of bread, the bread of life comes to feed a world in famine because of their sin. Chapter 4, uh, here, I'm sorry, chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. He shall stand and shepherd his, uh, he shall stand and shepherd his flock. Jesus is coming as the good shepherd. He even said this, John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his own life for the sheep. I know my own and my own know me. Jesus came as this promised shepherd to lead, to feed, to protect God's people. This is why he came. He comes in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of his name of the Lord his God. Messiah is fulfilling his, his calling in the power of God. You remember at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the Holy Spirit came upon him and empowered him. This is what Jesus did. Fulfills all of God's purposes in his power. They shall dwell secure. His name shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. Jesus brings peace. Consider the testimony of the angels in Luke 2. This is what heaven has to say about Jesus' birth. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I will bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born in this day in the city of David, a.k.a. Bethlehem, 
a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You shall find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. God promised that this one who would be born in Bethlehem would be the one who would come and give his people peace because he's going to shepherd them. These angels show up and say, he wasn't lying. Peace has come in your midst. Christ has come. God gives peace. He gives peace to his people. To a people wearied by all of the things that we've been talking about this morning and we could go around and testify about he gives peace. But I think it is important to notice here from the angel's testimony, Jesus comes to give peace. And he gives that peace not to all people, but to all people with whom he is pleased. Which raises the question, well, how, how, do, how do we be pleasing to him? How will God be pleased with me? Well, the answer is, receive the child. Humbly hope in the child. Humbly hope in this this one who came. This is, the, this is the good news that Christians rally around and sing about. Is that we do believe that Jesus came. We believe it. We believe He came. We believe He lived a sinless life. We believe He died on the cross to take our judgment. We deserve to be exiled into hell forevermore. But in His mercy, Christ took the judgment and the wrath in our place on the cross. And then He went into the grave. And then three days later, he rose from the grave. And now he promises peace to anybody. No matter where you've been or what you've done, he promises peace, forgiveness of sin, peace between you and God. To where you don't have to be his enemy any longer because you're rebelling against him, but rather peace, everlasting peace. And then he produces peace between his people. This is what Jesus came to do. He is the peace giver and the peace maker. But his peace will not be for everyone. Only for those who repent of their sin and believe in him. So, not to, not to ruin Christmas for anybody, but like, if you're, if you're not in Christ, one of the most dangerous things is the sentimentality of Christmas. To where you just love the songs and you love the smells and you love the, you know, the, the the frou-frou drinks, and you just love all of you just love Christmas, okay? Hallmark movies, all that kind of judgment stuff, um, all that stuff. Um, just kidding, honey. Um, but there's something really dangerous about that because it has an aroma of peace and it has aroma of joy to which you could almost escape from the realities of life just by getting caught up in the holiday. And you can miss that it's actually a word of judgment to the world. The, these songs that we're singing are about the fact that God became a man to live among us, to die for our sins and deliver us from judgment. And that if we won't repent of our sins, there's not joy and peace for us. There's judgment. So don't get disillusioned with the sentimentality of the season. It's a testimony to the world that God cares about our suffering and He's come to rescue us from it. 
But peace is only for those who find refuge in Jesus. And that's actually where, I'm not going to read it all, but that's where the rest of chapter 5 goes in Micah. You can read through, God promises a purge where He purges evil. Where He comes in and He removes every idol and everything that is an abomination that His people cling to and that all the world clings to in deception. He is going to come through and He, he removes it all in judgment. But He gives this word of hope so that we will not be swept away in that same judgment. But rather so that we will flee unto Jesus and know the peace that God offers through Christ. We can know that now, in Christ, by faith. But there will be a day coming when the Lord Jesus will return and there will be a final judgment and then He will usher His people in with Him forevermore. Listen to this from Revelation chapter 21. Speaking of this, this purge and then this being with Him forevermore. I saw no temple in the city, the final city where the heaven and earth are united. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. Why? For the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. God is the sun. God's not actually the sun. He takes the place of the sun. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Meaning all of the glory that Christ has given, it will radiate unto the Father forevermore. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does, not, who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. There is a final purge coming. This is the hope for us who suffer in this world, but Christ will come. And He will make it all right. Two brief things in conclusion. One, God gives peace through Jesus. And He... There's only ultimate hope in Jesus. Everything else will fail you. So enjoy the sweet things of this life. But don't bank, thing, don't bank on them. And also remember in this that every pain that you have, it should point you to the fact that we need help. It should point you to Jesus. God gives peace only through Jesus. Ultimately through Jesus. And then finally, this ought stir in us. We should cultivate hope in Jesus' return. One of the things that Christmas does, one of the helps, is that it reminds us that Jesus came but that he's going to come again. It's the precursor to, to the final act. It would be good for us, yes, to remember the incarnation. But every day, remember that the incarnation teaches us that there's a day coming when he will come and make all things right. Set your heart upon Jesus and that day. Christ came and he will come again. Now what we're about to do is we're about to, to take of the Lord's Supper together. In preparation for that, I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 25. This is going to be a picture of, of the celebration that God's people will have in that day of peace. The day where we will celebrate Him. So listen to this, and then I will pray, and during that time the, the brothers who are helping to serve can come on up, and then we'll, we'll celebrate in this foretaste of the meal that is to come one day when Jesus comes and makes all wrongs right. Hear this from Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the same mountain that Micah spoke of, 
On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of, of morrow, of aged wine well refined. And He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over the nations. It's the veil of death. And He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. That's what awaits God's people. The final day of peace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the hope that you give in promises. We thank you that you're, you're not just a promise-making God who is then fickle with the way that you treat them, but, but they are precious to you because they point us to you. And they should be precious to us because you're a God who keeps promises. You make promises and you keep them. And in light of that, we celebrate. Father, as we come now and in this season of, of pausing and lots of parties and joy and also lots of sorrows because of people who aren't here with us any longer, we pray that you would meet us in the midst of uh, this day and even this time. And that as we take of this supper together, this supper that we call the, the Lord's Supper, that it would indeed be that. It would be a remembrance of the Lord Jesus who was promised of old, who came many years ago and who we trust will return soon. And we pray that this, will, this would prime our hearts for that day of celebration where we will be with you in your kingdom and know peace everlasting. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.